Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. This week's show features an interview with former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, recorded on Friday evening here at the Irish Times. Our time was short, and there were a lot of questions I would have liked to ask that we didn't get to. But as you'll now hear, I did get to ask Mr Spicer about, among other things, the content of Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, his own tumultuous time in the White House, and Robert Mueller's investigation into alleged links between Donald Trump's election campaign and the Kremlin. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, welcome to the Irish Times. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think we have to start with the story that's been dominating headlines for the past week or so, and that's Michael Wolff's book, yeah. Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House. You were in the White House for most of the period, that, the, um, or all of the period covered by this book. How much of Wolff's account of chaos and infighting and even backbiting against the president do you recognise as accurate? Uh, you know, I'd say between 30 and 40%. There's a lot of themes and anecdotes um, that that happened. But when you get into the details of who was there and who, what was said, that's where a lot of the inaccuracies start to come up. So it's it's sort of like he generally describes a scene and then gets the actors and the words wrong. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem there. There's, there's multiple basic facts uh, that he gets wrong, a lot of relationships that he gets wrong, a lot of... Uh, quotes and in fact, when you talk, a, when the author uh, has been given the opportunity in interviews, he'll say, "Well, maybe that person didn't actually say it, but someone said it." But he put that person's quotes around it as if they said it. So I think we have to question the entire authenticity and accuracy of that book. Isn't the concern though that even if thirty or forty percent is accurate, given the the nature of the claims um, that he makes in it? I mean, he says that a hundred percent of the people he spoke to there believed that, that Donald Trump wasn't capable of doing the job and. Um, he says that the president increasingly repeats himself and the repetitions are getting more frequent and so on. So if even a quarter of that is true, it's kind of worrying, isn't it? But, but again, I, I think the question is, uh, th- look, I can tell you that that I spoke to him as as I did with many authors that came in. I never expressed that. He admits that he didn't speak to, the, to any members of the cabinet. He didn't speak to the vice president. Um, and knowing as I do m- all of the members of the president's senior staff, I, I would be alarmed if any of them did. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that considering Michael Wolff's past and uh, the pushback that the book has gotten, not just from the Trump White House, but from mainstream outlets and reporters from CNN to NBC to you, you name it, the New York Times, there are there are a lot of reporters and outlets that hardly have been kind to the president and to Republicans who have come out and cast doubt on the accuracy of this book and in his reporting um, methods. So, uh, you know. I, it is it is astonishing to me, frankly, that um, the credibility that folks are giving to this because on one hand, you'll see a segment on U.S. media talking about the book and the impact it's having. And then they'll have a segment a few moments later talking about the lack of credibility that the book has and casting doubt on um, his reporting tactics. So, uh, you know, in my mind, uh, you shouldn't have to publish a piece and um, – and as a reader, have to wade through it and guess what's right and what's not right. The bottom line in the book is that, um, as I mentioned, there are some scenes that clearly happened. Uh, but a lot of the um, details, the people that are there, I mean, you've seen it. He, he had one instance where he described a breakfast meeting um, and, and put a Washington Post reporter at the, at the scene 
the reporter said, not only was I not at the scene, I've never been to that hotel. Uh, you have another instance where he describes how he didn't know who John Boehner was, the former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, who was a frequent golfing partner of the president's, who he had spoken to multiple times over the past year. There are things that just don't pass the basic smell test uh, of this. And I think uh, that, to me, then questions the entire legitimacy of the book. And just did he reflect accurately what you told him? You had two conversations no, no. with him. No, and again, the conversations that I had first and foremost were about um, him wanting to introduce himself as an author and someone that was going to write a book on the president. Um, and and we met with several authors that had either proposed or uh, were in discussions about writing a book. So as the press secretary, they would contact me and say, I wanted to introduce myself. I would like to put in a request for the president and such. Um, but there's, there's several quotes uh, or incidents attributed to me that, frankly, either didn't happen or taken vastly out of context. And before I move off the book, um, two stories he he tells about you specifically. One, he says that uh, your daily, if not hourly mantra during your time in the White House was, and I quote, you couldn't make this shit up. Yeah. And he also I didn't know you could say that in Irish, uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, it's a word that might come up again, actually, before yeah. the discussion finishes, unfortunately. But in the in the early weeks um, of the presidency, he also says that the leaking from the White House had become so bad that you had to call a meeting of staff. You got you got everybody to surrender their mobile yeah. phones at the door. And you threatened, you know, to monitor mobile phones um, if this continued. Are those stories true? So on the first one, absolutely that's false. I mean, the idea that Michael Wolff has any idea about my I, – I, I don't think I've ever had a daily mantra, never mind an hourly mantra, about anything. So the idea is that I would utter that on a repeated basis is just flat-out false. Um, and again, as I mentioned, I, I spoke to Michael Wolff a couple times. The idea that he has any idea what my daily um, mantra would be – and again, I, I would argue that if you talk to – the people closest to me, including my family, they would they would be hard pressed to say I have any kind of you know repetitive uh, phrase of any sort. Um, so I I think that 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 on its face just shows you how out of touch he is. If it wasn't a mantra, sorry to cut in, but he does link it specifically to the claim that the president made that he had been wiretapped by by President Obama. He, he links that. I, statement. I understand what he did, mm. but but there were times I I believe what he is referring to is that in one of our interactions he he relayed a a, a series of incidents and said you know. Have you ever seen anything like that? And I think I said I, – I, I don't doubt that I've ever said the phrase, but I think um, my recollection is is that he was re- relaying a series of events and said, you know, how is all this possible? And I said, you just can't make that up. Um, but the idea that I repeatedly said it is just patently false. Um, and again, you, you, you have a, a, an individual – who didn't meet with me on multiple occasions, the idea he has any idea what I would say. If this is – if I had met with him over and over again and he had notes and whatever, that would be one thing. But but I didn't meet with him multiple times. He is attributing that to somebody else. Um, and again, if you look at what he says about how he interviewed people and how he interacted with people, it was that um, he would – he met with other individuals and then ascribed quotes to people that he hadn't talked to. So I I, I think that that – at best, this is shoddy um, and, and lacks any sense of legitimacy. And the other story, just briefly, the one about the, the mobile phone. Oh, I think the... that was well reported. There was an incident uh, in, in the White House where we'd had a morning meeting um, and one of the staffers spoke out about an incident uh, or a response that they thought would be appropriate to give um, to, to an event that was happening. Um, as we would bat around in morning meetings, different ways to respond to stories and events that were happening. Um, not a few hours later, that individual's um, comments from that very small meeting had um, uh, 
had come out in a in a media story. So I gathered the folks that had been in that meeting, and and we had a, a long talk about you know teamwork and trust. Uh, and I you know and I and I said mistakenly at the time, I'm like, look, if we want to, somebody obviously did this, uh, and so you know if we want to be able to trust each other as a team, let's let's look at you know everyone's phones and see if they had texted this reporter. Um, you know, I, in retrospect, uh, I think it was, it was out of a level of frustration, um, that, but that's not, that, that, that was reported at the time. Any, any, any thought that that's original reporting again, in, in Michael Wolf's case, the idea that he, what it looks like he did is he read a lot of other people's reporting and then tried to make it look like his own. Um, but that, that story was reported at the time. Okay, well, listen, moving on then from, from Michael Wolf, you gave an interview last week to CNN, and you said in that interview, there are plenty of things I wish I could do over. So what would you do differently if you had your time in the White House? Well, I appreciate it. That's an opportunity. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a book um, called The Briefing. It'll be out July 23rd. I've just sold the rights to, to Bite Back Media, and uh, it's available for purchase on Amazon here uh, in Ireland and the UK now. So go ahead and pre-order that. I think it'll do very uh, well. Thank yeah. you. Well, I hope so. And, and I think that's that's what I'm going to look for as an opportunity in the book is to sit down and go over the campaign, uh, the transition in those first, you know, eight months in the White House um, and, and walk readers through what happened um, through my eyes and through my experiences and, and, and explain that in some instances, um, you know, we intentionally did something and an unintended consequence happened. But in other times, we actually were trying to we, – we didn't realize that we were doing something and something um, was was portrayed as, as um, you know, in, in a different respect. And part of what I want to do is walk through a lot of those incidences and, and provide my, my experience and my understanding of what happened to give readers a different take than maybe the New York Times, the Washington Post, or Politico take on them. Okay, well, no doubt you're you're keeping some of the best material back for the book. But one one thing you have already expressed regret about is the the, the way you handled the the row, which was the first day more or less yeah. of your um, in, in in your job um, just after the president's inauguration and the row with the media over the size of the attendance at that inauguration. Um, you said you, you regret how it was handled, but you've never owned up to making false claims on the president's behalf. Uh, in that row, I mean, w- wouldn't it be better? Would that controversy be finally put to bed if you were to accept that actually the press were right in that in- instance, and you and the president were wrong? What were they right about? They were right about say, the numbers they provided about the size of the the attendance what, of the inauguration. So let's stop. Mm-hmm. Let me, the first thing I'd say: What numbers did the press ever provide? Well, I know the president said up to one no, and no, a no, half no. million attendants. No, no, no. Um, but you said the numbers that the press provided. The press actually never provided a number. Well, the press challenged the president's narrative that it was the largest uh, attendance ever at an inauguration. He said one and a half million attended, and it's clear that not one. Okay, and a half but million but my attended. point is, is that, and that's fine. I didn't say that. Okay, I never put a number down. Okay, so your question was, what you just asked me was, should I apologize f- for the numbers that the press put down? Number one, the press never put down any number ever to this day. So tell me what number I should apologize for. Well, I don't have the numbers to hand to the press that it didn't report. Okay, but I but, know, but, so you're asking me. But I know that false claims were made on on either your part or the president's okay, so part. Which, I'm not suggesting you claims? personally told Hold on. told a lie. If you're gonna, but if you're gonna say that I made a false claim, tell me which one it was, and I'll answer the question. Well, the, the president himself, the one and a half million. The president okay, so also wait, wait, said. Hold on. The president so you just also shifted. said. But no, no. But you just shifted. Uh, you said to me, "Are you going to apologize for your false claims?" And now you're saying that you want me to respond to what the president said. Okay. So. I, I, ask me, 
tell me what I should apologize for, and I'd be glad to answer your question. You said news organizations had deliberately misstated the size of the crowd. Correct. Uh, and what evidence did you have that they deliberately misstated the size of the crowd? Be- because the, the reports that went out to this day that at the time the National Park Service and others had not issued any kind of crowd sizes. Okay, so they had basically gone out and said, based on what we can see, this is what we believe. So my only point was how, how – the same question I asked you, how is anybody supposed to know how many people were in an area if they don't have any evidence themselves? The statement that I made, just to be clear – that day on Inauguration Day was the number of people in person or viewed it around the world. And I was very careful to talk about the global size of that audience because that included television, um, platforms, social media viewing. And frankly, the, the reason that we said what we said on that day was because we knew that social media platforms had recorded really high numbers of viewership that frankly had never existed. In other words, to be able to watch things on Facebook Live or Twitter Live that those platforms didn't exist eight years prior, right? So the point being is that just on the technological advances and the ability for people to view it on platforms around the world, not just in the United States, but on, on new platforms, on websites, on mobile devices, frankly didn't exist in the same way it did eight years later. And the idea was we had gotten reports from so many platforms about the number of viewers that had tuned in and watched that, that we felt very comfortable. But again, the phrase that I used on Inauguration Day wasn't just about the size of the in-person audience. And and, and what I said on CNN in that interview was that we should have been much more deliberate in talking about the totality of the size of that crowd and how we were doing it. But the phrase that we used at that time was, was... collective um, uh, about not just because if you look at it, it says in person and around the globe total audience. That's not what what the press got upset about was that they wanted to make it entirely about in in person. Um, Yeah, I know you've made that distinction since. And um, I suppose we're we're not going to resolve it here now. You also did say that photographs of the ceremonies were deliberately framed by the press to minimize the enormous support that it gathered. Um, So... um, I, I don't well, think again, that I, I think, happened. I, yeah. I, I think we recognized at the time there was there was huge backlogs at the uh, at these security checkpoints, and we knew that people were trying to get in throughout for out you know for backed up that and and that we felt as though the idea that on such a historic day on such a transformational day that to have commentators in the American press focus on whether or not people could get in or not and how many were in a given area. Undermine was an attempt to undermine the president's success, and I think it was it really showed the pettiness of a lot of folks in the American media. So you believe to this day there was a deliberate attempt by the media to no, underplay I, I that, the size of the crowd. I, I I believe that some that some members of the media chose to focus on that was a, was a, was a shame. I don't know how. I mean, the the point is is that what we do know from talking to people uh, that day and afterwards is that there was tremendous. Um, there was a tremendous amount of people trying to get in that were beyond the security barriers that were having difficulties getting through the line and different security checkpoints. Um, and the point is, is that it was unfortunate that that's what people chose to focus on as opposed to the policy and the agenda that was ahead. And how much damage do you think that row did to your relationship with the press and indeed to your reputation? Because, I mean, the, um, you've defended your position here again very, very well, but you Thank did you. suffer reputational damage. I, and, yeah, and, and again, much, and I think yeah. that's why... 
<coughs> excuse me. I, I think you know to to the point that I'm you, the the interview that you referenced last week, um, and part of the reason that that I want to write this book is to set the record straight that there are things that I think I would have done differently, and and the point that I'd made last week and I'd make again today is that look, we we should have moved on quicker on that. We should have taken questions that day. I should have. Um, focused more, as I just mentioned to you, on the disappointment that some chose to focus on that, as opposed to getting into a numbers fight. That really, that really took away, I think, from the president's agenda, from what he had laid out in his inaugural speech. And I think that we could have, um, you know, as a first step, that probably, you know, didn't help a lot of the relationship building. And do you think, in some ways, the, the administration never fully recovered from that? Start? Um, I, I, you know. That's a that's an interesting question. I'll never know the answer to. Um, I, I I don't think that. Um, I think the press. If there's a, a study, a Pew Pew um, study uh, that came out in the states that showed that 63 percent of the president's first 60 days media coverage was highly negative, five percent positive. That compares. That's that's um, three times as negative as it was under President Obama. Um, I, I think the press made it very clear from the election through the transition forward uh, that that they really were not uh, supportive of the president. And so what that did, I'm not so sure, but I think coming out of the gate, um, it, there was already a tinge of negativity. Now, one of the other consequences from that initial um um, that, that initial row and maybe trivial, maybe not, was it was kind of the start of the lampooning of you on Saturday Night Live and the way Melissa McCarthy played you as a particularly demented and even kind of scary version of yourself. How, how did you feel watching those sketches? Um, look, uh, Saturday Night Live is iconic in the United States and, and probably around the globe for some of the things that they've said and done over the years. Uh, so it was very weird as a um, someone who's been just uh, involved in politics, but at a very sort of behind-the-scenes way um, for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, so to see yourself portrayed on such an iconic show is is very uh, – it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to have happen. Um, initially, there was some funny parts about it, and I think, you know, what you've seen with Saturday Night Live is, um, is them really kind of jump from being funny in some cases to just, you know, somewhat mean. And, and I think that's where – uh, they lost it, is that there was a point in which it was kind of funny and, and I'm able to take a little bit of a joke, but um, y- y- they lost a little bit of that and went for more of the mean-spirited after a while. Um, were there other times when you felt you were in a position where you were trying, you, you were forced to defend something that the president said that wasn't true or a position he took, you know, that was, that was false? Well, um, you know, as a spokesman, I've been um, doing this for a long time, both um, for... Um, elected officials and for politicians, your job is is um, is to reflect what the, the principal person wants communicated um, on a particular matter when they can't speak for themselves. So, you know, your goal when, when it is uh, because there's such a media demand and, and so many inquiries is to touch base with the president and the team um, on whatever the issues of the day are and try to articulate the president's um, view on stuff. So people ask, what's the president's thinking on this? Or what's the, whoever that principal's thinking is on this? Your job is to reflect what their thinking is, plain and simple. And you did mention in an interview the other day that there was no leeway with President Trump. You know, in previous jobs, you might have had some leeway to interpret and say, this well, is what the person I think, would say. But I, I think yeah. that the, the point that I was getting across in that interview was 
that in a lot of times as a spokesperson, you you understand where your boss is on a particular issue or on um, uh, on a set of events or et cetera, or personnel matters or what have you. I think what I learned with President Trump is that uh, it was always best to check in uh, and get an up-to-date check as to what his thinking was um, rather than try to, you know, assume that, that you knew where it was. And a lot of times uh, the president's, you know, in a lot of cases evolving on, on, on an issue where depending on how circumstances change. And, and I learned that um, it was best to check in frequently with the president to make sure that you understood um, what his thinking was. And just to take one more, and I'll move off this topic then, but the the, the topic of, you know, truth or falsity. Um, there was a particular row over um, voter fraud, not a row, but I mean, this issue was raised by the president. Um, and to be specific about it, in November 2016, he tweeted, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote. If you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally, millions of people who voted illegally, you're then subsequently, a um, couple of months later in the White House, forced to defend that position. But but. You, you know that's not true, that millions of people voted Ill- illegally, don't you? Again, I, I think the, the point that you have to get back is that the job of the spokesman is is to reflect what the president's thinking is, what the president's view is, not to be an interpreter, not to do what you want to do. You weren't elected. Um, the president was elected by the American people. Your job as spokesperson um, is is to reflect what the president's thinking is on any given issue. That's not your, you know, and it is not your job to get up there um, and say, this is what I believe instead or what my views are on a particular issue. I wasn't elected. Um, it wasn't my job to do that. And I think that that's, you know, where a lot of the media constantly wanted to say, well, what do you believe? What are your thoughts on this? That's not my job. And I think that um, the the job of the spokesman, as I mentioned, is to reflect what the president's thinking or views are on any particular issue. But isn't it also the job of a spokesman? I mean, never to lie. I'm sure that you would make that no, a standard. No, but, 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 I, but, but uh, you almost sound like you're saying you would lie on behalf of the no, president. No, no, no. But, but what I'm saying to you is, is that when asked, what does the president think? The president's beliefs are what they are. I don't, my job is not to get up there and call balls and strikes and to say, but however, I believe the following. Same thing on policy. You can't get up there and say, the president believes that you know, we need to uh, enact this kind of domestic policy. What do you believe? That's not your job, regardless of whether or not you believe that policy is is what you fully believe is going to, you know, alleviate a problem or help help a group of citizens, whatever. The president was elected to espouse his beliefs, to enact policies to make the country better. Uh, whether or not you agree with every um, policy initiative or not, or every utterance, isn't your job. But did you feel comfortable batting for him on that particular one? I mean, it, Look, this stuff I, again, has consequences, I, I understand it? your question, but the bottom line is I, I've explained to you the role, mm. and, and that's what it is. Yeah, I was just going to make the point that it has major consequences if you if you put out the idea that millions of people are voting illegally. That I, I in understand. Turn right. And, and confidence again, in the I think system, that's a, the, right. But I, but I would argue that, look, you work for a newspaper, and there are probably times when there are stories or editorials written that you don't fully agree with. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. So do you, do you have to make your opinion known every time? Do you have to agree with everything that comes out on the pages of this paper? I'm, yeah. I'm not sure it's a... It's a <laughs> um, uh, that relevant a comparison, but... Um, well, no, uh, I, I think it um, is because at some point, um, you either you either have a job where at some point you say, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable working for this person, this institution, this paper, whatever it is, because they don't, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm in sync enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
But part of being a spokesperson is espousing the views and, and describing the, the reasons that certain policies are being enacted. If my paper made a claim on you to be false, I wouldn't go out and, and defend that position. Uh, mm. but, but would you? Uh, OK, well, I, and I'm not. But, but you might be able to say this is why they did this or why they they wrote this editorial. Um, OK, well, listen, just to move off, off that and just to go back a step to your appointment in, in uh, December 2016, your, your appointment as White House press secretary was announced. Um, we know, or at least we've read, that the president had some misgivings about uh, appointing you because you had a long established track record in the Republican Party. You'd been uh, chief strategist and head of communications for the Republican National Committee. So it kind of made you establishment, if you like. And he was elected on a platform of of overturning the establishment. So... He had these misgivings, not about your abilities, but about your. Well, I, again, I, I think you're 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 referring to stuff in a Michael Wolff book, which I've I've already discussed. I'm not actually no. I mean, if, if, is that, that's not correct. If that's not correct. You can correct me if I'm well, wrong. Again, but I, I this think this is kind of the, uh, the yeah. But I mean, um, the, no, I, I think you're you're largely relying on an anecdote from a Michael Wolff book that's been, you know, as I mentioned before, yeah. largely discredited. Yeah, I didn't uh, read that particular one, and I haven't read all of the book. Okay, <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's where I think it largely stems. Uh, and and again, I think. Um, all I know, we, we worked hard for the president. I think um, we were committed to, to getting him elected after he became our nominee, uh, as we've done as a committee. That's the job of the, of the Republican National okay. Committee. I, I developed a great relationship with the president. Um, and uh, on December 22nd, he offered me the job. My, my question was a little long-winded, so I apologize for that. My question was going to be, did you have any misgivings about working for him? No, I, look, I, I, as you mentioned, I've been involved in politics for a long time. Um, you know, this was an unbelievably historic time in our country. And um, and to be part of that, um, you know, there's obviously some good days and some bad days, uh, as there are in any job. But but it was a real honor to be part of this um, uh, historic piece in history. And uh, Sean, we're, we're running out of time. So can I just ask you for a review on where you see things developing in the Trump presidency from here, and particularly the issue of the, the Mueller investigation into alleged links with the uh, um, the Kremlin during the, the presidential election campaign, which the administration strongly denies. How worried do you think the president is about that investigation? I don't think he's worried at all, frankly. Uh, and I think he's reiterated that uh, almost every time he's had an opportunity. Um, you know, I, I can't say I was there for the entire, uh, but we I, I started playing a, a fairly uh, active role in coordinating our activities between the RNC and the campaign. Uh, right around the, the uh, convention in July of last year and then began to work a, a lot closer in August up through the end and then into the transition. I clearly saw uh, nothing that would uh, cause any concern. Um, the president's made that very clear multiple times. Um, so I don't see, uh, you know, I think there's obviously been a multitude of interviews that have, have happened and you've had a House committee and a Senate committee and everybody's looking into this and a year after an election – uh, you know, we haven't seen any uh, – the everything else leaks out and, and no leaks have come out about anything that, that really should concern anybody at this point. And based on, like I said, what I saw at the time, uh, there's there was – you know, in fact, if you go back in time, the, quite the opposite was true. There was a lot of a lot of people saying that we, we weren't coordinating with the party and we weren't doing this. Now suddenly it's, you know, all this coordination cons- or, or collusion occurred. But uh, there was there was clearly nothing that, that worried anyone at the senior levels. But, but- is he concerned that if even if the Russian thing turns into a bottle of smoke, which he clearly thinks it will, that is he concerned that the investigation is veering into other areas such as his finances and so on? I not that not that I'm aware of, and there there needs to there seems to be no uh, nothing that I'm aware of that that that's happened. Uh, and he, from all the statements that he's made, doesn't seem to to share that concern. 
So you, you, you think he'll serve out his term and serve another term? I do. I mean, if he runs for re-election, he'll be the nominee. And I think, again, one of the things that, that is important to understand, if you look at one of the biggest determinative factors that people have in the United States is how the economy is doing. We continue to see unemployment at record lows, 4.1%. Job creation is, is definitely doing very, very well. Uh, more and more companies after this tax cut uh, was just passed are adding bonuses. Walmart, one of our largest employers, just up the minimum wage that they're giving. They're talking about adding benefits. Um, as more and more Americans, working Americans, see the benefits of, of the tax uh, cut package that was just passed and also see so many other aspects of the economy do well, housing and business confidence. Um, I think that will be a big determinative effort um, in the presidential election. Sean Spicer, thank you. Thank you very much. That's all from this edition of Worldview. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.